appreciate that. It's good to be back here with you at the South and uh, look forward to sharing with you. I just want to do one little plug. Um, uh, it has been my privilege to lead a number of tours to Israel, and I have another one coming up uh, this fall. And so if you ever wanted to go or dreamed about going to Israel, I'm leading another tour this November, November 21st to December 4th. And so I have a few brochures with me uh, this morning. And so if you uh, would like some information about that and have wondered about going, um, please talk to me after the service, and I'd be glad to give you information about that. Um, it does... Uh, have such a, a profound impact in the way in which we read our Bibles and the way in which we uh, uh, see um, just God's Word in, in, in a different way. And so uh, it has been my privilege to go a number of times and um, went last fall and decided to do another trip this fall. And so uh, that's all I'll say right now. But um, it's just a, a life-impacting journey. And so, um, yeah. Um, today's message title is uh, Life Lessons from the Back of an Ambulance. Um, odd title for a message, I know, but it's very personal, and uh, you're going to see why in just a few moments. But if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I get to speak here at the South twice this uh, summer, once right now, and then again in, in uh, um, August. And uh, we're going to look at Philippians in these two different messages that I'll give to you, um, because um, I had some health issues, and um, God spoke to me out of the book of Philippians during my health issues, which uh, these are going to be personal messages um, through these, uh, these two messages because of the health issues that I had. And, and this morning's message is going to be, um, you'll understand the health issues because I'm going to uh, speak to you out of that. And, and uh, you'll probably not be surprised at all, but God is always ahead of us in our journeys. And um, he was way ahead of me in my journey on this um, topic and these health issues. And so it was during this time that uh, he directed me to the book of Philippians, and, and you're going to see why as I, as I share with you. Let me just pray for us, and then we're going to dive in, and uh, you'll um, be able to see very clearly as we look at um, Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Let me just pray. Father, I thank you for... Um, being the God that you are and for the uh, opportunity we had to worship you this morning. I, it is always such a privilege to worship you. Wow, God. That you and your grace would invite us as your people to engage you in that way because, Lord, you are so worthy. You aren't a distant, faraway God that, that is so high and, and mighty that you don't dare to, to even allow us. But Father, you, you are so intimate and so close that you, you invite us to come near and, and you come so close through your son and that you invite us to connect with you. And, and God, that is such an amazing thing about you. It's such a privilege then that we get to, to connect with you in that way. And I thank you for the songwriters who... As, as Sarah introduced us to that new song this morning, the songwriters keep on writing more songs, God. That's because they, they keep finding new ways to express worship of you. And Father, I'm so glad that, that the, the cup hasn't dried up, that the, the, the creativity hasn't dried up of finding ways to tell you how great you are. Because you are so awesome. 
And this morning as we look into what Paul wrote to a church in Philippi that he so deeply and profoundly loved. Father, I pray that you would allow me this privilege of of just sharing these thoughts that I learned just a, a, a few weeks, a couple of months ago as I, as I was going through some struggles in my own personal journey that you were so gracious to point out to me these lessons. Pray, Father, that you would speak fresh once again through my heart and through my life. That God, your spirit would move in our midst this day. And that by your graciousness and your grace, you would teach us from Philippians 3 what Paul had to say to a church that he so deeply loved and this church here that you so deeply love that we would hear your voice. God, that's amazing. But that we would hear your voice today. And we ask for that. And we thank you what you're about to do. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. Mr. Wilson. Mr. Wilson, do you know where you are? Mr. Wilson. Mr. Wilson, do you know where you are? It was the the first question I became aware of as I was regaining consciousness. The EMT asked the question repeatedly until I was able to give an answer as I was lying in the back of the ambulance. And really, it's no point in asking another question until you can answer that question with some sense of clarity. And unfortunately for me, it wasn't the first time I had been asked that question in that particular situation, riding in the back of the ambulance on the way from my house to the Kelowna General Hospital. Um, I'd gone through a series of seizures, started last August, and uh, the question was being asked this particular time on January the 6th of 2019, and the EMT was asking me once again, Mr. Wilson, Mr. Wilson, do you know where you are? And as I said, there's no point in asking any further questions because if you can't answer that question, why ask another question? And so finally, in my fogginess, I was able to say yes. And that answer isn't quite good enough for them. Because you could be saying yes to anything. And so they say, well, where are you? And they want to know that you can actually answer that question with some sense of clarity. And so I say to them, "Uh, I'm in the back of an ambulance. And then finally they're happy and they'll go on to other questions. And so people have asked me, well, well, what's it like having a seizure? And I apologize if you're under the age of 35 or 30 because this illustration may not work very well for you because um, what I've tried to explain to people is that when you have a seizure, for me the best way that I can illustrate it is like I think of my brain as having like a, a, a bunch of file folders. And so um, a file folder, if you're not uh, under the age of 35, is, is uh, paper. And you guys aren't really familiar with that because you use, uh, you know, lots of other things. But if you're over 35, this works very well for you. You understand. 
And so file folders contain um, subjects, and they have uh, tabs across the top, and there's uh, important documents in those files, and you know what that's all about. And so I think of it as like you have it on your desk or uh, in your, uh, your uh, file cabinets, and so you pull it open because you want to get to that particular file, and there's important information in there. And so I explained to people that after you've had a seizure, it's like um, you can't get to the right file at the right time. And so it's not that the file folder is gone. It's just that what has happened after you had a seizure, it's like someone has taken your file folder and the file is gone, all, all the information is gone on the floor. And so you didn't lose the information. It's just that it's there on the floor and it's now mixed up. And so... After having a seizure, it's like, you know, you, you got the information all there still. It's just like, oh, man, it's not in the right spot anymore. And so you could be asking me questions about stuff, and it's like, okay, my brain's scrambling now to find the right answers for the right information. And so the EMT might ask me, okay, what year is it? I've gotten that one wrong. And so I've said, uh, 2016 and they write that information down. And when they start writing stuff down, I can tell that that's not a good situation. Because if I get the answer right, they're not writing anything down. They just go on to the next question. I was like, rats, I hate getting answers wrong. And so they'll ask me other questions. They've, uh, They've asked me who the Prime Minister of Canada is. And so I've gotten that one wrong as well. I've said, uh, Stephen Harper. And they go... And they write that information down. I go, oh, rats, I got that one wrong too. And so we keep on going with other questions and other answers that I know I'm not getting right. And, and so, like I said, I hate getting answers wrong. And that frustrates me because I'm a guy that likes to get the answers right. So anyway, we keep on going through questions and answers. And we're trying to get things right because I want to have the right answers. But it's not that the answers are wrong because I got the answers right to other questions. But just not in the right particular order and so it's not like i you know they ask me who's the prime minister of canada i say donald trump well that would be a totally wrong answer but i got the right answer but it's just in the wrong order of things so it's very fascinating when you've had a seizure because it's like you got the the answer correct but it's just in the wrong order and so you go through this process of trying to get the right answers in the right order and so i go through a series of tests after i've had the seizures and they go through all the medical process of, of trying to figure out why my brains had seizures. And, and so I go through every medical test that I could have. And so I go into the neuro- neurologist's office after I've had all of the seizures that, I, I was, uh, that I'd had. And I sit down with my neurologist, who is a, a very brilliant man. He's been to school and everything. And he sits down and uh, he crosses his arms and he sits there all official-like. And, and I don't know what to do because uh, I'm not as official as he is. And, and I just want answers to why I've had the seizures and um, he says to me, uh, Mr. Wilson. And I'm like, yes. And um, he says, I want you to know something. This is good. I'm going to have answers now because I'm not in an ambulance. I'm now in an office. This is good. And I haven't had the seizures for a while. And so this is good. He says, I want you to know something. Yes, this is great. And he says, there is nothing medically wrong with you. Wow. But I've had five seizures now by this point in time. I says, okay, well, so then why did I have five seizures? And he sits with his arms crossed, and he says, I can't answer that question. I'm like, that's not really the answer I was hoping for. And he says, but this good news is that there's nothing medically wrong with you. Well, that is good news. 
But that doesn't answer the question that I was hoping to have answered. The question I have is that, why was I having seizures? And he answers that question with, again, I can't answer that question. Well, so, finished up my appointment with him with uh, walking out the door and thinking, okay, on the one hand, this is good news, is that there's nothing medically wrong with him, although I have some friends of mine who would like to question him on that particular answer. They think there are some things medically wrong with me. But uh, I went through all the tests and there are no medical problems with me. There's nothing wrong with my brain from their medical standpoint. But he can't answer the question as to why I'm having seizures. And so we go to there with thinking, well, there's a relief that there's no tumors. There's nothing like that wrong. But they don't have the answers as to why I'm having seizures. But I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 because we're going to read through some things. And like I said earlier, God is always ahead of us. And I want to give you some important facts about the book of Philippians that I think are crucial for our study that we're going to look at this morning. That um, Philippians is written, and if you have been in church for any length of time at all, you'll know that Philippians is written by this guy Paul. Um, Philippians is written by this guy Paul while he was in prison, that I think is really important for us to understand. And Philippians is written by this guy Paul, who was a Pharisee, which is like saying that in his day he was probably the most religious and most learned guy that you could come across, which is important to keep in mind while we're looking at this um, study. All right? So, written by a guy named Paul, um, and uh, one of the most uh, religious guys you could come across at that point in time, and uh, he's had a life-changing process that he's gone through. And so let's go and read through uh, the first uh, number of verses that we've got here in our... Um, Bible. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And so uh, we'll start at verse 1. Philippians chapter 3. Did I skip something already? Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Here we go. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision... We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is where he's giving his sort of background and his pharisaical uh, sort of uh, testimony and uh, uh, resume. A Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So he had a, a, a whole sort of background that sort of gives his uh, standard of who he was. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, and this is the transition that he went through, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So, a couple of lessons that I've come through in looking at... uh, this process, and as I said, God's always ahead of us, and he was ahead of me when I was going through this uh, um, health process or health difficulty that I was challenged with, and so when I came through this process, God directed me to the book of Philippians, and what I did was I began to to read through the book and read through it a number of times and began to uh, 
stop every so often and, and uh, get stuck in a certain passage or get stuck in a chapter. And, and God would just maybe sometimes say, just right there, just stop right there. And sometimes it would be a verse. Sometimes it would be a, a phrase. Sometimes it would be um, uh, just a word. And um, I would read through the book sometimes from uh, the whole thing at a time. It takes you about 14 and a half uh, minutes if you want to read through the whole thing at, uh, in a one sitting. It doesn't take all that long really to read through the book. But um, I got immersed in the book of Philippians in a way that I had never been immersed in before. And this started last fall. And to be honest with you, it hasn't stopped. I, I still go back to Philippians in my own personal devotional time. And I am just... Uh, awestruck by the Apostle Paul in his condition that he was in and um, amazed that this man who was in, the, in, in prison could write this stuff that he was writing to a people who were not in prison that we need to be clear about. And so let me just give you a couple of lessons that I've learned from Paul's writing here in Philippians chapter 3. Lesson number one, clarity is a beautiful thing. This is from a guy who went through seizures when clarity wasn't so clear. Clarity is a beautiful thing. So clarity allows us to rejoice, all right? Clarity allows us to rejoice. So number one, clarity allows us to rejoice. Where is Paul writing the letter from? Well, he's in prison, and he commands the believers who are not in prison to rejoice. So think about that for a few moments. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Look what he says. So the guy who's in prison writes to people who are not in prison and he tells them to rejoice. That's pretty impressive. Chapter 1, verse 4, verse 18, verse 25, chapter 2, verse 2, verses 17 and 18, verses 28 and 29, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 4, verse 10, Paul connects rejoicing. Now listen to this. Paul connects rejoicing to a relationship and not to a circumstance. And especially not to stuff. Let me say that to you again. All of those verses, chapter 1, verse 4, verse 18, chapter uh, 1, verse 25, chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 4, verse 10, Paul connects them all to rejoicing to a relationship. You hear that? He connects rejoicing to a relationship and not to circumstances, especially not to stuff. Wow. The guy who's in prison writes to a people who are free. He calls them to rejoice. That is just so, for me, mind-boggling with clarity. You see, my joy is not in my possessions or in my circumstances. My joy is in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't remember anything else from these moments that we will share together this morning, I want you to take that home with you today. Why is this so clear for Paul? Well, where is he writing from? He's writing from prison. What has been taken from him? He tells us 
that absolutely everything has been taken from him. He says, Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, verse 2, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. It is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God. And he carries on because, see, Paul says, I've lost everything. Paul could still rejoice because he was now in a situation, he was now in a circumstance, if you want to use that word. He was now in a scenario where he had lost absolutely everything. They had taken all of the worldly things that Paul once had as a Pharisee, but the one thing that they had not taken from him because it was impossible to take from him was his relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I can still rejoice because I've discovered that that cannot be taken from me and I'm rejoicing. It was clear. It was clear. It is no trouble. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write this to you. It's no trouble for me to write this to you. What's he talking about? It's no trouble for me to write to you to rejoice. I've lost everything, but you see, it's no trouble for me to write this to you, to rejoice. I don't have anything anymore, but what I have is the greatest thing that anyone can have. Our relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul could still rejoice because he couldn't take Jesus from him. Have we discovered that? Or are we still struggling with hanging on to something that makes it difficult for us to rejoice? just in case it gets taken from us. A number of weeks ago, I ran into a a tough week. I'd arrived home on a Monday, and as my plane had just landed, my phone vibrated, and I looked at who was texting me, And it was a close friend telling me that his brother, who was one of my pastors, I oversee a series of churches here in Western Canada, and a good friend of mine was texting me to tell me that one of his brothers, or his brother, one of my pastors in Manitoba, had just died at 6 a.m. that morning out of a massive heart attack. I was blown away because I know his brother well, and I didn't know, obviously, at that point in time that this man had just died. It was 6 a.m. in the morning that morning and and so I had to start dealing with that texting our head office to tell him that our pastor had just died having to deal with his wife and family and let them deal with the pastors in that area to gather around to help them process that loss and gather around to help her and her family The next day, my administrative assistant who works out of Saskatoon texts me and tells me that they're on their way to Toronto with their three-year-old 
A couple of days later, they're making the agonizing decision to have their child's eye removed and a prosthetic eye put in. They prayed and wept as parents in the process, and I prayed with them. Can't imagine the pain knowing that that child will be blind in that one eye for the rest of her life. On Friday of that same week, my co-worker who I'm close with, he does the same job that I do in southern Ontario, and he texts me in and sends this message to me, giving me words that I can't even begin to, to process. He's same age that I am, and, and he's about to have his first grandchild, but um, he says... Um, that your grandchild is never going to be normal. I asked him how he's doing, and he says, um, well, that's a uniquely difficult topic. And he says, well, my daughter and her husband have decided that they're going to bring the baby to full term. The baby shows no sign of getting better, and the indicators are that she will have little, if any, auto-responses, eating, breathing, facial expressions, etc. And frankly, Russ, he says, we are in pain. I'm distracting myself nicely through work. Karen has decided to take a leave from work. Missy, that's her daughter, is on doctor-ordered part-time employment. There's very little hope and happiness here except the fact that God is good and still sovereign, and each person in our family thinks so. And he went on to say that the doctors and all the professionals around them have said, abort, abort, abort. But our daughter has said no. That's her baby. And I thought, I don't know what to say. I don't have words. So I texted back and said, I've prayed and I've times wept. I can't understand, but like you, I know and believe that God is good. And he says, thanks. It means more to us than you can ever possibly understand because he knew that I'd been going through my own health issues but I believe there's this time when God calls us to go through hard times but in the midst of this I've got a good God and Paul writes and he says rejoice in the Lord and I think how do I rejoice in the midst of circumstances like this and I got all this information in one week I think, God, I don't know how to do it. And so I'm struggling with this idea. And so what do I do when I'm struggling? Well, what I do is I go back to the truth of the Word of God. Because He doesn't lie to me. And so I come back to the truth. The truth is that my joy is not based upon my circumstances. But the truth as well is that at times when my circumstances are just plain hurt and my heart is broken... And when that's true, then I need to turn to Jesus. I don't turn away from him because there's no truth there. And so clarity, what is the clarity in the midst of that? Well, the clarity is that there's joy in my relationship, not away from my relationship. It's not found in the stuff of this world and it's not found in the circumstances of life. I can testify it's certainly not found in the health or the lack of health in this life. Joy is found in relationship. And so I turn to the relationship and I say to my God, 
I'm hurt and I'm broken. And I need you more than ever. I need you. In my hurt and in my brokenness, I need you. And so I'm not going to turn away from you. I'm going to turn to you. And so what does Paul say next? He says, well, I believe that the clarity allows me to worship. And so look at verse 3. In verse 3 it says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, Paul says, and put no confidence in the flesh. Because I don't think there's any clarity there. Though Paul says, I myself have reasons for such confidence. And here's where he gives his testimony. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is his background, his history. In regards to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Ah, and then he gets to his testimony. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Remember where he is. He's in prison. He's got nothing. He says, in fact, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, clarity allows me to worship. When I look at verse 3, I said, Paul says, we worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ. You see, true worship doesn't happen because we have the right music, we have a great worship leader, even though you guys are blessed with great worship here. It happens because I'm overwhelmed by who my Savior is and by the Spirit of God working within me, prompting me to praise and worship my God. It's not the circumstances of life that allow me to worship. It's by understanding who my God is and realizing I look at Him and I say, God, you are so worthy. Do you get to that point in time when you're, when you're just looking at who our God is and who our Savior is and you say, I'm just overwhelmed. I've got to. And Paul, that's what he says as he goes through his testimony. He says, it's not because of who I am. It's because of who he is that I glory in him. Paul was the kind of guy that if you had a, 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 a scripture knowledge test and, and uh, 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 yeah, test with him, he would win every time. If you put him on the stage and, and did one of those quizzes, Paul would be the guy who would win every single time. He knew so much. But Paul says, all of my background... Whatever was to my prophet, verse 7, I now consider a loss. Why? He says, for the sake of Christ. Paul had looked at everything that he once had, all of his background, and his testimony, and where it turns, he says, I look at this and I say, no, all of my background doesn't mean anything now. What means everything now is my relationship with Jesus Christ. And we need to stop here because some of us need to take stock and look 
inside of our own hearts. We don't have the same testimony as Paul in the sense of saying, well, we're Pharisees. But some of us may have the same general background as Paul. What do I mean by that? Well, some of us may have that same background in the sense that we grew up in the church. So verses 4, 5, and 6 may have the same general idea as us. That we know church. Paul had a pharisaical background in that he, he knew all the stuff. He had all the pharisaical um, upbringing. You and I may have a pharisaical upbringing in the sense that we grew up in church. We know the rules and regulations, if it were, as it were. And Paul says, I count that all as lost now. Why? Because, you see, what I did was I met Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you this question. Have you met Jesus Christ? Or have you just grown up and gone to church? Because there's a world of difference. One's religion and the other is a personal relationship. And Paul says it's a world of of difference. Because when he met Jesus, it totally changed his life. Totally changed his life. He put it in a kind of a rough language. Because in verse 8 he said, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. And in the original language, it even is a little bit more rough language. Have we got to that point where we say, everything in this life that I have, I consider it totally secondary. I consider it like garbage compared to the one thing that I want more than anything else. And what I want more than anything else is Jesus. When I was in the back of the ambulance... it became clear to me that health was actually secondary to Jesus. But yeah, I, I didn't want my health. But the question I had to ask was, did I want my health more than I wanted Jesus? And the answer came, No. I wanted Jesus more than I wanted my health. It's an interesting thing to get to. And so as I was praying through and working through Philippians this past year, this past season in my life, I found myself praying that I had to get to that point in my relationship with God and saying, okay, God, what I want more than anything else was I want I want to know you. And so as I moved along in my second lesson, I had to determine what's important. Because, you see, determining what's important is actually really important, and it's found in verse 10. 
you see, as Paul works his way through this letter and he, he gets to this uh, prayer that he gets to in chapter 3, verse 10, he finally comes out and he says it just clearly. He's got through all the stuff that he's got through in chapter 3, verses 1 through to 9, but then he comes out and he just says very clearly in verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow detained to the resurrection from the dead. Here's Paul who knows more as a Pharisee because he was a Pharisee's Pharisee. He was the, the top of the heap from a knowledge standpoint. But he's not talking here about, the scholars tell us, he's not talking about book knowledge here. He's not talking about reading more books and making more studies so that he would have more head knowledge about Jesus. He's talking about relationship here. So Paul knew the scriptures inside and out, but what he really wanted to know was he wanted to know Jesus better. And so determining what's important is important. And what we're talking about here is actually knowing Jesus better. I had taken several ambulance rides by this point in time. I had been through all of the medical tests that I could possibly take by this point in time. And the neurologist had told me that he didn't have another patient like me and there were no more tests for me to take and he had no cause for my seizures. And so my wife and I began a spiritual search. We said, okay, so the medical world has done everything they can do for me. And we walked out of the neurologist's office and said, okay, the medical world can't find a cause for the seizures. And we went back to my prayer that I had prayed when I was going through Philippians. And we'd gotten to chapter 3, verse 10, when I had sat down in, in my study and I said, Lord, if the Apostle Paul had prayed this prayer... I want to know him better. And I got down on my knees and I said, God, if that man had prayed that prayer, then if he felt he needed to know Jesus better, then who am I? I need to know him better. And I found a number of seizures started to happen after that prayer. And the medical world said, there's no cause for your seizures. Then I felt there was a spiritual battle that was happening in my life. And if God was going to use those seizures to humble me and cause me to trust him at a deeper level, then I said, okay, if that's part of his process to take me to my knees so that I would turn to him and my life would slow down and I would simply say, okay, God, if this is your journey so that I would know your son better, whatever the journey is I will walk with you so that I can know Jesus better I don't care what it takes if the answer is I get to know Jesus better I'm okay with it whatever the cost you see it changes my perspective. When I think like Paul, I just want to know Jesus better. You see, that's all I want. That's all I want at this stage in my life. 
I can remember having two of my daughters come to the hospital room. They said, Dad, are you okay? On January the 6th, as they visited me, and I smiled and I said, yeah, I actually am okay. Because, you see, I think this is part of a journey that God, my God, is taking me on because there's two words that I heard in each of the ambulance rides. Those two words were simply this, trust me. And I can remember hearing them so clearly after I answered some of the questions right and some of the questions wrong from the EMTs. But I kept hearing the same two words over again and over again. Trust me. My father, answering my prayer, I believe, deepening my walk with him so that I would know his son better, my savior better. Trust me. Because he heard my prayer from Philippians 3 verse 10. I want to know his son better. So trust me, this is part of a journey. I don't know how he's going to answer the prayer in an ongoing way, but there's nothing I want more than to know Jesus better. It's a risky prayer. But it's my heart's desire. And let me ask you this. Is there anything more important than knowing Jesus better? I don't think Paul thought so. That's why he prayed it in Philippians 3, verse 10. He wanted to know Jesus better. Let me close with a story that reminds us of just how awesome this Jesus is in the midst of our busy and often broken lives. At the end of February, after I'd had my last seizure that I'd had up to this point in time, I was called down to Ontario for our national board meetings and I went with my uh, chairman of my Western Region Council and we flew down to uh, Toronto and we're at our, our camp that we are, our association owns down there and as we're at this camp, um, we were about three days into the meetings of, uh, it was supposed to be five or six days long and, and Myron, my uh, chairman from our Western Region Council, gets a, a text and he has a little girl in his church who's about 10 years of age and she's suffering from this extremely rare disease and he says, I got to go. And I said, what's up? He says, um, tells this little girl that she's probably not going to make it. He says, I got to get back to Winnipeg. And so he takes off in the rental car that he's in and uh, he drives to the Toronto International Airport and hopes to be able to get his flight adjusted to get back to, uh, to Winnipeg. And so it's late at night on uh, Tuesday night and drives. And so I text him early the next morning. I said, are you in Winnipeg? He says, no, actually, I'm still in Toronto. He says, they're... They're trying to adjust my flight. He said, but they're saying the earliest they can get me out is maybe 11 or 12 noon today. And so uh, I said, oh, I said, uh, we're praying for you, man. I said, I hope you can get back before she passes on. He says, yeah. He says, they, she's still alive right now. He says, but I'm just hoping I can get back to be with the family and, and be with the little girl. So we're just praying together. He said, but a weird thing happened to me about 6 o'clock this morning here in the airport. I said, what's that? He's well, he says, I'm sitting alone and he says he'd overnighted it in the airport just hoping to be able to get out on the earliest flight possible. And, and he says, just think about this. Toronto International Airport is the largest airport in Canada, right? And uh, the thing about my friend Myron is that uh, he's not pastoral-looking type. He's more the biker-looking type. He's uh, got a beard and he's uh, burly, dresses often in a leather jacket and stuff, and he's sitting in the Toronto airport. He hasn't slept all night. 
And uh, he doesn't have that come-hither approach when you sort of look about him. Uh, he hasn't slept, and uh, he's, he's more of a, you know, mind your own business and stay away from me look. And so he says about 6 o'clock in the morning, he says this kid approaches him and says, uh, Hey, buddy, that alone is just a miracle all by itself. And so I said, well, later on when we're texting, I said, well, when you said kid, how old are you talking? He says, well, he says, that guy's maybe 20. Myron's in his mid-40s. And so, uh, so Myron snaps his head up and says, what? And so this kid just says, uh, says to him, hey, buddy. And Myron looks up and says, what? And this kid says to him, uh, I, um, uh, sorry to bother you, but I've just got this, um, this sense that I'm supposed to pray for you. Toronto International Airport. Myron has spent all night there. He's got one desire. He wants to get home to be with a family whose daughter is dying. And God whispers into the ear of a 20-year-old kid. He says, I got one thing I want you to do today. I want you to go and pray with that man who's tired, exhausted, he hasn't slept, but he needs you. And the kid says, yes, Father. So he walks over to Myron and says, hey, buddy, sorry to bother you, but uh, I got this sense I'm supposed to pray for you. So Myron says to him, sit down. He's just gruff, just that kind of way about him. And the kid sits down beside him and Myron tells him what's going on in his life. And the kid prays for him, puts his hand on his shoulder, prays for him, gets up and leaves. And Myron never sees him again. He's texting me this story. I text him back. I say, Myron, that's some kind of God you serve. I don't know about you, but I want to know that Jesus better. that in the largest airport in Canada, he can find a tired, broken-down pastor and a 20-year-old kid and whisper into his ear, I've got one thing for you to do. And the kid will say, yeah, I'll do it. And bring them together in our busiest international airport meet their needs I don't know about you but I just want to know that with God better because I think he's pretty amazing we're going to share communion together now we're going to remember what he's done for us and the way the tradition here at the south is if you're visiting is we uh, going to read the communion story and and then we'll just uh, as you're prompted by God's spirit in your own heart in your own mind 
come up and uh, serve yourself. The band will come up in just a few moments and they'll play quietly as uh, as you're coming up and um, you'll dip it into your own into the communion juice and take it back to your serve your your seat and uh, as you're quietly thinking about what our God has done, we'll remember the the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Um, Gluten free is at the back in the back corner back there for those who need that. But let's remember what Jesus has done for us and how great he is. I'll read it to us and then the band will come up and we'll start playing quietly for a bit and um, and we got a couple of songs that we're going to close off with uh, in worship. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're remembering and we're proclaiming. There's two things going on. We're remembering what Jesus has done for us. And we're also proclaiming. And Paul goes on to say, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, it's good for us to examine our own hearts to make sure that we're in that right relationship understanding what a wonderful wonderful thing Jesus has done for us and so as you feel led come on up and take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and go back and remember what Jesus has done and by remembering them we're proclaiming that our Lord and Savior is exactly who he said he is he is a great and awesome God. I'll invite the band to come on up. They can play quietly for a few moments. And then as they feel led, they can lead us into the worship of the last songs that they've got for us.